Wuthering Heights, Chapter 29 The evening after the funeral, my young lady and I were seated in the library, now musing mournfully, one of us despairingly on our loss, now venturing conjectures as to the gloomy future. We had just agreed the best destiny which could await Catherine would be a permission to continue resident at the Grange, at least during Linton's life, he being allowed to join her there and I to remain as housekeeper. That seemed to rather too favourable an arrangement to be hoped for, and yet I did hope, and began to cheer up under the prospect of retaining my home and my employment, and above all my beloved young mistress, when a servant, one of the discarded ones not yet departed, rushed hastily in and said that devil Heathcliff was coming through the court. Should he fasten the door in his face? If we'd been mad enough to order that proceeding, we'd had not time. He made no ceremony of knocking or announcing his name. He was master, and availed himself of the master's privilege to walk straight in without saying a word. The sound of our informant's voice directed him to the library. He entered, and motioning him out, shut the door. It was the same room into which he had been ushered as a guest eighteen years before. The same moon shone through the window, and the same autumn landscape lay outside. We had not yet lighted a candle, but all the apartment was visible, even to the portraits on the wall, the splendid head of Mrs Linton and the graceful one of her husband. Heathcliff advanced to the hearth. Time had little altered his person either. There was the same man, his dark face rather sallower and more composed, his frame a stone or two heavier, perhaps, and no other difference. Catherine had risen with an impulse to dash out when she saw him. Stop, he said, arresting her by her arm. No more runnings away. Where would you go? I'm come to fetch you home. And I hope you'll be a dutiful daughter and not encourage my son to further disobedience. I was embarrassed how to punish him when I discovered his part in the business. He's such a cobweb. A pinch would annihilate him. But you'll see by his look that he has received his due. I brought him down one evening, the day before yesterday, and just set him in a chair and never touched him afterwards. I sent Hareton out, and we had the room to ourselves. In two hours, I called Joseph to carry him up again, and since then my presence is as potent on his nerves as a ghost, and I fancy he sees me often, though I am not near. Hareton says he wakes and shrieks in the night by the hour together and calls you to protect him from me, and whether you like your precious mate or not, you must come. He's your concern now. I yield all my interest in him. Why not let Catherine continue here, I pleaded, and send Master Linton to her? As you hate them both, you'd not miss them. They can only be a daily plague to your unnatural heart. I am seeking a tenant for the Grange, he answered, and I want my children about me, to be sure. Besides, that lass owes me her services for her bread. I'm not going to nurture her in luxury and idleness after Linton is gone. Make haste and get ready now, and don't oblige me to compel you. I shall, said Catherine. Linton is all I have to love in the world, and though you have done what you could to make him hateful to me, and me to him, you cannot make us hate each other. And I defy you to hurt him when I am by, and I defy you to frighten me. You are a boastful champion, replied Heathcliff, but I don't like you well enough to hurt him. You shall get the full benefit of the torment as long as it lasts. 
It is not I who will make him hateful to you. It is his own sweet spirit. He is as bitter as gall at your desertion and its consequences. Don't expect thanks for his noble devotion. I heard him draw a pleasant picture to Zilla of what he would do if he were as strong as I. The inclination is there and his very weakness will sharpen his wits to find a substitute for strength. I know he has a bad nature, said Catherine. He's your son, but I'm glad I have a better to forgive it and I know he loves me and for that reason I love him. Mr Heathcliff, you have nobody to love you. And however miserable you make us, we shall still have the revenge of thinking that your cruelty arises from your greater misery. You are miserable, are you not? Lonely, like the devil, and envious like him. Nobody loves you. Nobody will cry for you when you die. I wouldn't be you. Catherine spoke with a kind of dreary triumph. She seemed to have made up her mind to enter into the spirit of her future family and draw pleasures from the griefs of her enemies. You shall be sorry to be yourself presently, said her father-in-law. If you stand there another minute, be gone, witch, and get your things. She scornfully withdrew. In her absence, I began to beg for Zilla's place at the heights, offering to re resign mine to her, but he would suffer it on no account. He bid me be silent and then, for the first time, allowed himself a glance round the room and a look at the pictures. Having studied Mrs Linton's, he said, I shall have that home, not because I need it, but... He turned abruptly to the fire and continued with what, for lack of a better word, I must call a smile. I'll tell you what I did yesterday. I got the sexton, who was digging Linton's grave to remove the earth off her coffin lid, and I opened it. I thought once I would have stayed there when I saw her face again. It is hers yet. He had hard work to stir me, but he said it would change if the air blew on it, so I struck one side of the coffin loose and covered it up. Not Linton's side, damn him. I wish he'd been soldered in lead. And I bribed the sexton to pull it away when I'm laid there and slide mine out too. I'll have it made so. And then by the time Linton gets to us, he'll not know which is which. You are very wicked, Mr Heathcliff, I exclaimed. Were you not ashamed to disturb the dead? I disturb nobody, Nelly, he replied. And I gave some ease to myself. I shall be a great deal more comfortable now. And you'll have a better chance of keeping me underground when I get there. Disturbed her? No, she has disturbed me night and day through 18 years, incessantly, remorselessly, till yesternight. And yesternight I was tranquil. I dreamt I was sleeping the last sleep by that sleeper, with my heart stopped and my cheek frozen against hers. And if she had been dissolved into the earth, or worse, what would you have dreamt of then, I said? Of dissolving with her and being more happy still, he answered. Do you suppose I dread any change of that sort? I expected such transformation on raising the lid, but I'm better pleased that it should not commence till I share it. Besides, unless I had received a distinct impression of her passionless features, that strange feeling would hardly have been removed. It began oddly. You know I was wild after she died and eternally from dawn to dawn, praying her to return to me her spirit. 
I have a strong faith in ghosts. I have a conviction that they can and do exist among us. The day she was buried, there came a fall of snow. In the evening, I went to the churchyard. It blew bleak as winter, all round was solitary. I didn't fear that her fall of a husband would wander up the glen so late, and no one else had business to bring them there. Being alone, and conscious two yards of loose earth was the sole barrier between us, I said to myself, I'll have her in my arms again. If she be cold, I'll think it is this north wind that chills me, and if she be motionless, it is sleep. I got a spade from the tool house and began to delve with all my might. It scraped the coffin. I fell to work with my hands. The wood commenced cracking about the screws. I was on the point of attaining my object when it seemed that I heard a sigh from someone above, close at the edge of the grave and bending down. If I can only get this off, I muttered. I wish they may shovel in the earth over us both. And I wretched at it more desperately still. There was another sigh close at my ear. I appeared to feel the warm breath of it displacing the sheet-laden wind. I knew no living thing in flesh and blood was built, but as certainly as you perceive the approach to some substantial body in the dark, though it cannot be discerned, so certainly I felt that Cathy was there, not under me, but on the earth. A sudden sense of relief flowed from my heart through every limb, I relinquished my labour of agony and turned consoled at once, unspeakably consoled. Her presence was with me. It remained while I refilled the grave and led me home. You may laugh if you will, but I was sure I could see her there. I was sure she was with me and I could not help talking to her. Having reached the heights, I rushed eagerly to the door. It was fastened and I remember that the accursed Earnshaw and my wife opposed my entrance. I remember stopping to kick the breath out of him, and then hurrying upstairs to my room and hers. I looked round impatiently. I felt her by me. I could almost see her, and yet I could not. I ought to have swept blood then from the anguish of my yearning, from the further of my supplications to have but one glimpse. I had not one. She showed herself, as she often was in life, a devil to me. And since then, sometimes more, sometimes less, I've been the sport of that intolerable torture. Infernal, keeping my nerves at such a stretch that if they had not resembled cat guts, they would long ago have relaxed the feebleness of Linton's. When I sat in the house with Hareton, it seemed that going out I should meet her. When I walked on the moors, I should meet her coming in. When I went from home, I hastened to return. She must be somewhere at the heights, I was certain. And when I slept in her chamber, I was beaten out of that. I couldn't lie there. For the moment I closed my eyes, she was either outside the window, or sliding back the panels, or entering the room, or even resting her darling head on the same pillow as she did when a child. And I must open my lids to see... And so I opened and closed them a hundred times a night to be always disappointed. It racked me. I've often groaned aloud till that old rascal Joseph no doubt believed that my conscience was playing the fiend inside of me. Now I've seen her. I'm pacified. A little. It was a strange way of killing, not by inches, but by fractions of hair's breaths, to beguile me with the spectre of a hope through eighteen years.
Mr Heathcliff paused and wiped his forehead. His hair clung to it, wet with perspiration. His eyes were fixed on the red embers of the fire, the brows not contracted, but raised next to the temples, diminishing the grim aspect of his countenance, but imparting a peculiar look of trouble and a painful appearance of mental tension towards one absorbing subject. He only half addressed me, and I maintained silence. I didn't like to hear him talk. After a short period, he resumed his meditation on the picture, took it down, and leant it against the sofa to contemplate it to better advantage. And while so occupied, Catherine entered, announcing that she was ready when her p- and her pony should be saddled. Send that over tomorrow, said Heathcliff to me, and then turning to her, he added, You may do without your pony. It's a fine evening, and you'll need no ponies at Wuthering Heights. For what journeys you take, your own feet will serve you. Come along. Goodbye, Ellen whispered my dear little mistress. As she kissed me, her lips felt like ice. Come and see me, Ellen. Don't forget. Take care to do no such thing, Mrs Dean, said our new father. When I wish to speak to you, I'll come here. We want none of your prying at my house. He signed her to precede him, and casting back a look that cut my heart, she obeyed. I watched them from the window, walked down the garden. Heathcliff fixed Catherine's arm under his, though she disputed the act at first, evidently, and with rapid strides he hurried her into the alley whose trees concealed them. Chapter 30 I have paid a visit to the Heights, but I have not seen her since she left. Joseph held the door in his hand when I called to ask after her and wouldn't let me pass. He said Mrs Linton was thrang, and the master was not in. Zilla has told me something of the way they go on, otherwise I should hardly know who was dead and who was living. She thinks Catherine haughty and does not like her, I can guess by her talk. My young lady asked some aid of her when she first came, but Mr Heathcliff told her to follow her own business and let his daughter-in-law look after herself, and Zilla willingly acquiesced, being a narrow-minded, selfish woman. Catherine evinced a child's annoyance at this neglect, repaid it with contempt, and thus enlisted my informant among her enemies, as securely as if she had done her some great wrong. I had a long talk with Zilla about six weeks ago, a little before you came, one day when we foregathered on the moor, and this is what she told me. The first thing Mrs Linton did, she said, on her arrival at the Heights, was to run upstairs without even wishing good evening to me and Joseph, She shut herself into Linton's room and remained there till morning. Then, while the master and Earnshaw were at breakfast, she entered the house and asked all in a quiver if the doctor might be sent for, for her cousin was very ill. We know that, answered Heathcliff, but his life is not worth a farthing and I won't spend a farthing on it. But I cannot tell you how to do, she said, and if nobody will help me, he'll die. Walk out of the room, cried the master and let me never hear a word more about him. None here care what becomes of him. If you do, act the nurse. If you do not, lock him up and leave him. Then she began to bother me, and I said I'd had enough plagued with the tiresome thing. We each had our tasks, and hers was to wait on Linton. Mr Heathcliff bid me leave that labour to her. How they managed together I can't tell. I fancy he fretted a great deal and moaned himself that night and day and she had precious little rest. One could guess by her white face and heavy eyes. 
She sometimes came into the kitchen wildered-like and looked as if she would fain beg assistance. But I was not going to disobey the master. I never dared disobey him, Mrs Dean. And though I thought it wrong that Kenneth should not be sent for, it was no concern of mine either to advise or complain, and I always refused to meddle. Once or twice, after we had gone to bed, I've happened to open my door again and seen her sitting crying on the stairs top, and then I've shut myself in quick for fear of being moved to interfere. I did pity her then, I'm sure. Still, I didn't wish to lose my place, you know. At last, one night, she came boldly into my chamber and frightened me out of my wits by saying, Tell Mr Heathcliff that his son is dying. I'm sure he is this time. Get up instantly and tell him. Having uttered this speech, she vanished again. I lay a quarter of an hour listening and trembling. Nothing stirred. The house was quiet. She's mistaken, I said to myself. He's got over it. I needn't disturb them, and I began to doze. But my sleep was marred a second time by a sharp ringing of the bell. The only bell we have, put up on purpose for Linton and the master, called to me to see what was the matter and informed them that he wouldn't have the noise repeated. I delivered Catherine's message. He cursed to himself and in a few minutes came out with a lighted candle and proceeded to their room. I followed. Mrs Heathcliff was seated by the bedside with her hands folded on her knees. Her father-in-law went up, held the light to Linton's face, looked at him and touched him. Afterwards he turned to her. Now... Catherine, he said, how do you feel? She was dumb. How do you feel, Catherine, he repeated. He's safe and I'm free, she answered. I should feel well, but, she continued with a bitterness she couldn't conceal, you have left me so long to struggle against death alone that I feel and see only death. I feel like death. And she looked like it too. I gave her a little wine. Hareton and Joseph, who had been wakened by the ringing and sound of feet and heard our talk from outside, now entered. Joseph was fain, I believe, of the lad's removal. Hareton seemed a thought bothered, though he was more taken up with staring at Catherine than thinking of Linton. But the master bid him get off to bed again. We didn't want his help. He afterwards made Joseph remove the body to his chamber and told me to return to mine and Mrs Heathcliff remained by herself. In the morning, he sent me to tell her she must come down for breakfast. She had undressed and appeared to going to sleep, and I said she was ill, at which I hardly wondered. I informed Mr Heathcliff, and he replied, Well, let her be till after the funeral, and go up now and then to get her what is needful, and as soon as she seems better, tell me. Cathy stayed upstairs a fortnight, according to Zilla, who visited her twice a day and would have been rather more friendly, but her attempts at increasing kindness were proudly and promptly repelled. Heathcliff went up once to show her Linton's will. He had bequeathed the whole of his and what had been her movable property to his father. The poor creature was threatened or coaxed into that act during her week's absence when his uncle died. The lands, being a minor, he could not meddle with. 
However, Mr Heathcliff has claimed and kept them his wife's right and his also. I suppose legally at any rate, Catherine, destitute of cash and friends, cannot disturb his possession. Nobody, said Zilla, ever approached her door except that once, but I, and nobody asked anything about her. The first occasion of her coming down into the house was on a Sunday afternoon. She had cried out when I carried up her dinner that she couldn't bear any longer being in the cold and I told her the master was going to Thrushcross Grange and Earnshaw and I needn't hinder her from descending. So as soon as she heard Heathcliff's horse trot off she made her appearance donned in black and her yellow curls combed back behind her ears as plain as a Quaker. She couldn't comb them out. Joseph and I generally go to the chapel on Sundays. The Kirk, you know, has no minister now, explained Mrs Dean. And they called the Methodists or Baptist place, I can't say which it is, at Gimmerton, a chapel. Joseph had gone, she continued, but I thought proper to bide at home. Young folks are always the better for an elder's overlooking. And Hareton, with all his bashfulness, isn't a model of nice behaviour. I let him know that his cousin would very likely sit with us and she had been always used to see the Sabbath respected. So he had as good leave his guns and bits of indoor work alone while she stayed. He coloured up at the news and cast his eyes over his hands and clothes. The train oil and gunpowder were shoved out of sight in a minute. I saw he meant to give her his company, and I guessed by his way he wanted to be presentable. So, laughing as I durst not laugh when the master is by, I offered to help him if he would, and joked at his confusion. He grew sullen and began to swear. Now, Mrs Dean, Zilla went on, seeing me not pleased by her manner, you happen think your young lady too fine for Mr Hareton, and happen you're right, but I own I should love well to bring her pride a peg lower, and what with all her learning and her dainties do for her now, She's as poor as you or I, poorer I'll be bound. You're saying, and I'm doing my little, all that road. Hareton allowed Zilla to give him her aid, and she flattered him into a good humour. So when Catherine came, half forgetting her former insults, he tried to make himself agreeable by the housekeeper's account. Mrs walked in, she said, as chill as an icicle, and as high as a princess. I got up and offered my... Her, my seat in the armchair. No, she turned up her nose at my civility. Earnshaw rose too and bid her come to the settle and sit close by the fire. He was sure she was starved. I've been starved a month and more, she answered, resting on the word as scornful as she could. And she got a chair for herself and placed it at a distance from both of us. Having sat till she was warm, she began to look around and discovered a number of books on the dresser. She was instantly upon her feet again, stretching to reach them, but they were too high up. Her cousin, after watching her endeavours for a while, at last summoned courage to help her. She held her frock, and he filled it with the first that came to hand. That was a great advance for the lad. She didn't thank him. Still, he felt gratified that she had accepted his assistance, and ventured to stand behind as she examined them, and even to stoop and point out what struck his fancy in certain old pictures which they contained. 
nor was he daunted by the saucy style in which she jerked the page from his finger. He contented himself with going a bit farther back and looking at her instead of the book. She continued reading, or seeking for something to read. His attention became, by decrees, quite centred in the study of her thick, silky curls. Her face he couldn't see, as she couldn't see him. And, perhaps not quite awake to what he did, but attracted like a child to a candle, at last he proceeded from staring to touching. He put out his hand and stroked one curl as gently as if it were a bird. He might have struck a knife into her neck. She started round in such a taking. Get away this moment! How dare you touch me! Why are you stopping there? She cried in a tone of disgust. I can't endure you. I'll go upstairs again if you come near me. Mr Hareton recoiled, looking as foolish as she could do. He sat down in the settle very quiet, and she continued turning over her volumes another half hour. Finally, Earnshaw crossed over and whispered to me, Will you ask her to read to us, Scylla? I'm stalled of naught doing naught, and I do like, I could like to hear her. Do not say I wanted it, but ask of yourself. Mr Hareton wishes you would read to us, ma'am, I said immediately. He'd take it very kind, he'd be much obliged. She frowned and, looking up, answered, Mr Hareton and the whole set of you will be good enough to understand that I reject any pretense at kindness you have the hypocrisy to offer. I despise you and will have nothing to say to any of you. When I would have given my life for one kind word, even to see one of your faces, you all kept off. But I won't complain to you. I'm driven down here by the cold, not either to amuse you or enjoy your society. What could I have done? began Earnshaw. How was I to blame? Oh, you are an exception, answered Mrs Heathcliff. I never miss such a concern as you. But I offered more than once, and asked, he said, kindling up at her pertness. I asked Mr Heathcliff to let me wake for you. Be silent, I'll go out of doors or anywhere, rather than you have your disagreeable voice in my ear, said my lady. Hareton muttered that she might go to hell for him, and unslinging his gun, restrained himself from his Sunday occupations no longer. He talked now freely enough, and she presently saw fit to retreat to her solitude. But the frost had set in, and in spite of her pride, she was forced to condescend to our company more and more. However, I took care there should be no further scorning at my good nature. Ever since I've been as stiff as herself... She has no lover or liker among us, and she does not deserve one. For let them say the least word to her, and she'll curl back without respect of anyone. She'll snap at the master himself, and as good as dares him to thrash her. And the more hurt she gets, the more venomous she grows. At first, on hearing this account from Zilla, I determined to leave my situation, take a cottage, and get Catherine to come and live with me. But Mr Heathcliff would as soon permit that as he would set up Hareton in an independent house. And I can see no remedy at present unless she could marry again. And that scheme it does not come within my province to arrange. Thus ended Mrs Dean's story. Notwithstanding the doctor's prophecy, I am rapidly recovering strength. And though it be only the second week in January... I propose getting out on horseback in a day or two and riding over to Wuthering Heights 
to inform my landlord that I shall spend the next six months in London and if he likes he may look for another tenant to take the place after October. I would not pass another winter here for much. Chapter 31 Yesterday was bright, calm and frosty. I went to the heights as I proposed. My housekeeper entreated me to bear a little note from her to her young lady, and I did not refuse, for the worthy woman was not conscious of anything odd in her request. The front door stood open, but the jealous gate was fastened, as at my last visit. I knocked and invoked Earnshaw from among the garden beds. He unchained it and I entered. The fellow is as handsome a rustic as need be seen. I took particular notice of him this time, but then he does his best, apparently, to make the least of his advantages. I asked if Mr Heathcliff were at home. He answered no, but he would be in at dinner time. It was eleven o'clock, and I announced my intention of going in and waiting for him, at which he immediately flung down his tools and accompanied me in the office of watchdog, not as substitute for the host. When we entered, Catherine was there, making herself useful in preparing some vegetables for the approaching meal. She looked more sulky and less spirited than when I'd seen her first. She hardly raised her eyes to notice me, and then continued her employment with the same disregard to the common forms of politeness as before, never returning my bow and good morning by the slightest acknowledgement. She does not seem so amiable, I thought, as Mrs Dean would persuade me to believe. She's a beauty, it's true, but not an angel. Earnshaw surlily bid her remove her things to the kitchen. Remove them yourself, she said, pushing them from her as soon as she had done and retiring to a stall by the window where she began to carve figures of birds and beasts out of the turnip parings in her lap. I approached her, pretending to desire a view of the garden and, as I fancied, adroitly dropped Mrs Dean's note onto her knee, unnoticed by Hareton. But she asked aloud, what is that? And chucked it off. A letter from your old acquaintance, the housekeeper at the Grange, I answered, annoyed at her exposing my kind deed and fearful lest it should be imagined a missive of my own. She would gladly have gathered it up at this information, but Hareton beat her. He seized and put it in his waistcoat, saying Mr Heathcliff should look at it first. Thereat, Kathleen silently turned her face from us and very stealthily drew out her pocket handkerchief and applied it to her eyes. And her cousin, after struggling a while to keep down his softer feelings, pulled out the letter and flung it on the floor beside her as ungraciously as he could. Catherine caught and perused it eagerly, then she put a few questions to me concerning, concerning the inmates, rational and irrational, of her former home, and gazing towards the hills, murmured in soliloquy, I should be liked riding Minnie down there. I should like to be climbing up there. Oh, I'm tired. I'm stalled, Hareton. And she leant her pretty head back against the sill with half a yawn and half a sigh and lapsed into an aspect of abstracted sadness, neither caring nor knowing whether we remarked her. Mrs Heathcliff, I said, after sitting some time mute, you are not aware that I am an acquaintance of yours, so intimate that I think it strange you won't come and speak to me. 
My housekeeper never wearies of talking about and praising you, and she'll be greatly disappointed if I return with no news of or from you, except that you received her letter and said nothing. She appeared to wonder at this speech and asked, Does Ellen like you? Yes, very well, I replied hesitatingly. You must tell her, she continued, that I would answer her letter, but I have no materials for writing, not even a book from which I might tear a leaf. No books? I exclaimed. How do you contrive to live here without them? If I may take the liberty to inquire, though provided with a large library, I'm frequently very dull at the Grange. Take my books away and I should be desperate. I was always reading when I had them, said Catherine, and Mr Heathcliff never reads, so he took it into his head to destroy my books. I have not had a glimpse of one for weeks. Only once I searched through Joseph's store of theology to his great irritation, and once, Hareton, I came upon a secret stock in your room, some Latin and Greek, and some tales and poetry, all old friends. I brought the last here, and you gathered them, as a magpie gathers silver spoons for the mere love of stealing. They are of no use to you, or else you concealed them in the bad spirit that, as you cannot enjoy them yourself, nobody else shall. Perhaps your envy counselled Mr Heathcliff to rob me of my treasures. But I've most of them written on my brain and printed in my heart and you cannot deprive me of those. Earnshaw blushed crimson when his cousin made this revelation of his private literary accumulations and stammered an indignant denial of her accusations. Mr Hareton is desirous of increasing his amount of knowledge, I said, coming to his rescue. He is not envious, but emulous of your attainments. He'll be a clever scholar in a few years. And he wants me sunk to a dunce meantime, answered Catherine. Yes, I hear him trying to spell and read to himself, and pretty blunders he makes. I wish you would repeat Chevy Chase as you did yesterday. It was extremely funny. I heard you. And I heard you turning over the dictionary to seek out the hard words, and then cursing because you couldn't read their explanations. The young man evidently thought it too bad that he should be laughed at for his ignorance and then laughed at for trying to remove it. I had a similar notion and remembering Mrs Dean's anecdote of his first attempt at enlightening the darkness in which he had been reared, I observed, but Mrs Heathcliff, we have each had a commencement and each stumbled and tottered on the threshold. Had our teachers scorned instead of aiding us, we should stumble and totter yet. Oh yes, she replied, I don't wish to limit his acquirements. Still, he has no right to appropriate what is mine and make it ridiculous to me with his vile mistakes and mispronunciations. Those books, both prose and verse, are consecrated to me by other associations and I hate to have them debased and profaned in his mouth. Besides of all, he has selected my favourite pieces that I love the most to repeat, as if out of deliberate malice. Hareton's chest heaved in silence a minute. He laboured under a severe sense of mortification and wrath, which it was no easy task to suppress. I rose, and from a gentlemanly idea of relieving his embarrassment, took up my station in the doorway, surveying the external prospect as I stood. He followed my example and left the room, but presently reappeared bearing half a dozen volumes in his hands which he threw into Catherine's lap, exclaiming, Take them! 
I never want to hear or read or think of them again. I won't have them now, she answered. I shan't connect them with you and hate them. She opened one that had obviously been turned over and read a portion in the drawling tone of a beginner, then laughed and threw it from her. And listen, she continued provokingly, commencing a verse of an old ballad in the same fashion. But his self-love would endure no further torment. I heard, and not altogether disapprovingly, a manual check given to her saucy tongue. The little wretch had done her utmost to hurt her cousin's sensitive though uncultivated feelings, and a physical argument was the only mode he had of balancing the account and repaying its efforts on the inflictor. He afterwards gathered the books and hurled them on the fire. I read in his countenance what anguish it was to offer that sacrifice to spleen. I fancied it as they consumed. He recalled the pleasure they had already imparted and the triumph and ever-increasing pleasure he had anticipated from them. And I fancied I guessed the incitement to his secret studies also. He had been content with daily labour and rough animal enjoyments till Catherine crossed his path. Shame at her scorn and hope of her approval were his first prompters to higher pursuits, and instead of guarding him from one and winning him to the other, his endeavours to raise himself had just produced the contrary result. Yes, that's all the good that such a brute as you can get from them, cried Catherine, sucking her damaged lip and watching the conflagration with indignant eyes. You'd better hold your tongue now, he answered fiercely. And his agitation precluded further speech. He advanced hastily to the entrance where I made way for him to pass. But ere he had crossed the door stones, Mr Heathcliff, coming up the causeway, encountered him and laying hold of his shoulder, asked, What's to do now, my lad? Nought, nought, he said, and broke away to enjoy his grief and anger in solitude. Heathcliff gazed after him and sighed. It will be odd if I thwart myself, he muttered, unconscious that I was behind him. But when I look for his father in his face, I find her every day more. How the devil is he so like? I can hardly bear to see him. He bent his eyes to the ground and walked moodily in. There was a restless, anxious expression in his countenance. I had never remarked there before, and he looked sparer in person. His daughter-in-law, on perceiving, perceiving him through the window, immediately escaped to the kitchen, so that I remained alone. "'I'm glad to see you out of doors again, Mr Lockwood,' he said in reply to my greeting. "'From selfish motives, partly. I don't think I could readily supply your loss in this desolation. I've wondered more than once what brought you here.' "'An idle whim, I fear, sir,' was my answer, "'or else an idle whim is going to spirit me away. I shall set out for London next week.' and I must give you warning that I feel no disposition to retain Thrushcross Grange beyond the twelve months I agreed to rent it. I believe I shall not live there any more. Oh, indeed, you're tired of being banished from the world, are you, he said. But if you be coming to plead off paying for the place you won't occupy, your journey is useless. I never relent in exacting my due from anyone. I'm coming to plead off nothing about it, I exclaimed, considerably irritated. Should you wish, I'll settle it now. And I drew my notebook from my pocket. No, no, he replied coolly. You'll leave sufficient behind to cover your debts if you fail to return. I'm not in such a hurry. 
Sit down and take your dinner with us. A guest that is safe from repeating his visit can generally be made welcome. Catherine, bring the things in. Where are you? Catherine reappeared, bearing a tray of knives and forks. You may get your dinner with Joseph, muttered Heathcliff aside, and remain in the kitchen till he is gone. She obeyed his directions very punctually. Perhaps she had no temptation to transgress. Transgress. Living among clowns and misanthropists, she probably cannot appreciate a better class of people when she meets them. With Mr Heathcliff, grim and saturnine on the other hand, and Hareton absolutely dumb on the other, I made a somewhat cheerless meal and bade adieu early. I would have departed by the back way to get a last glimpse of Catherine and annoy old Joseph, but Hareton received orders to lead up my horse and my host himself escorted me to the door so that I could not fulfil my wish. How dreary life gets over in that house, I reflected while riding down the road. What a realisation of something more romantic than a fairy tale it would have been for Mrs Linton Heathcliff had she and I struck up an attachment, as her good nurse desired, and migrated together into the stirring atmosphere of the town.